When they lovingly said, I do, I don't think they meant murder. Two seemingly stable young people fell in love, but the chemistry between them was toxic. It would lead to addiction, theft, violence, and a gruesome thrill-killing. This is the tale of the unholy matrimony of Benjamin and Erica Sifrit. Welcome to Twisted Travel and True Crime. I'm your host, Sandy. Let's dive in. The two burglars, looking for an adrenaline rush and some free merch, were in the finishing stretch. They had broken into a Hooters restaurant in Ocean City, Maryland. They were on vacation, after all, and wanted to have some fun. Fun for them included theft and thrills. Erica Sifrit had an obsession with Hooters. She loved their merch and had been known to bribe waitresses for their flimsy tank tops. Worn tank tops were the hardest to come by, but she enjoyed the hunt. She was an obsessive collector and even carried a Hooters purse. She never worked at Hooters. I won't speculate as to why, but the truth was Erica never worked much at all. She was young, only 24 years old, and she was smart. She had been an honors student and a basketball star who had graduated from Mary Washington College. Her husband, Benjamin, also 24, was an ex-Navy SEAL, dishonorably discharged. Of course, they robbed the Hooters for money, but mostly what they were after were items in the gift shop that they could keep or sell on eBay. What they didn't know was that a silent alarm had gone off, and police were on their way. As they were carrying stolen items from the store to their Jeep Cherokee, they were caught in the act. Police apprehended them, and as they did so, Erica began to panic. The couple were placed in handcuffs, and upon searching them, police found a 9mm handgun and a knife on Benjamin, and a fully loaded three fifty seven Magnum tucked into Erica's blue jeans in the small of her back. Another knife was found on Erica. Inside the couple's car was another gun, ski masks, flex cuffs, which are zip ties designed to work as handcuffs, and tape. The two were arrested and charged with burglary, but at the scene of the crime, Erica began to panic. She told officers that she had anxiety problems and that she needed her Xanax and Paxil from a brown leather pouch in her purse. One of the officers looked through her purse for the pills and only found one kind that she was asking for. He continued to look for the other pill inside another red pouch because he'd noticed some medicine bottles inside that bag. He wasn't successful there either, so he kept searching. He looked inside a zippered pouch at the back of the purse where he found two spent shell casings, one live round, and two identification cards not belonging to the Sifrits. The IDs belonged to a man named Joshua Ford and a woman named Martha Jeannie Crutchley. Officers would find gloves, knives, and undeveloped film in the car as well. It was obvious there was something irregular going on here. Why would the two burglars carry all these weapons and someone else's IDs? Where were the owners of the ID cards? As they followed up on that question, they realized that friends and relatives of Josh Ford and Martha Crutchley were looking for them. They'd been missing for a week. Martha Crutchley's co-workers had called Fairfax, Virginia City Police. They told police that Martha had failed to show up for work following the Memorial Day weekend. This wasn't like her at all. Fairfax Police then contacted the Ocean City Police, knowing that Martha and Josh had been headed there for a fun and enjoyable weekend on the coast. The Ocean City Police had diligently checked the condominium where Martha and Fred had planned to stay, 
and they found the couple's belongings in the condo. It seemed as if they had just stepped out, but the odd thing was their car was still parked in the lot. Police had been actively searching for the missing couple. The officers acted quickly and determined their next best step would be to go to Erica and Benjamin's condominium. Upon entering the Sifrit's rented condo, police observed photographs and two bullets on the table. The pictures were of Eric and Benjamin and Martha and Josh. The bullets were from the same gun taken from Erica at the Hooters. Shockingly, one of the bullets appeared to have blood and flesh on it. Police then found a key to Martha and Josh's condo on another table. Something very bad had happened here. I'd like to rewind now and tell you about how two seemingly well-adjusted young people somehow became unhinged thrill killers. Erica was a petite, pretty brunette who grew up in a wealthy family. She was the only child of the well-off Grace family. Her father owned a construction business that did really well. Her mom was a stay-at-home mom who seemingly had a wonderful relationship with her husband. Her parents enjoyed spending time together and spending time with their daughter. She had happy, involved parents and abundant wealth, but nothing in life is perfect. Erica would say her dad was demanding, maybe even a workaholic. He always wanted more from himself and Erica. His approval meant everything to her. When she showed an interest in basketball, he decided she'd become the best basketball player. Not only that, but he'd help coach her. He demanded hard work from her, and when she wasn't getting much playing time in high school, he bought a house, more like a mansion, really, with a swimming pool and an indoor basketball court in the garage. He then wiggled his way into the head coach position at her high school, just so she could get more time on the court. Erica seemed to thrive under this pressure and got straight A's. She would study late at night, drinking energy drinks after a full day of school and then basketball practice. Even with all her hard work on the basketball court, there was one thing she was missing, though, and that was height. When she left the protection and possibly privilege of her family and went off to college, she was surprised to find out that she was actually just mediocre at basketball. Her confidence would take a dive. She hated to fail. This was evident in her relationships, too. She seemed to seek approval from her friends, but especially, and in some ways, expectedly, from her boyfriends. We all know love hurts, and grief is ultimately the price we pay for love. But Erica seemed to grieve in a harmful way. In one instance, when her boyfriend broke up with her, friends watched on in shock and surprise as she hit her head against a brick wall. She did this so hard and for so long that she began to bleed, and her friends had to call 911 for help. Aside from this, her college life was pretty normal. She wasn't really a party animal. She was shy and not much of a drinker. She'd go to bars and parties and sip one drink the entire night. It was at one of these local bars where she would meet Benjamin Sifrit. He liked to be called BJ. No, his middle name doesn't start with a J. I like to think, in this case, BJ stands for Baby Joystick. I'm going to call him Benjamin. Benjamin was aware of Erica's intense interest in him, but he was distracted. His focus was on his career at the time. Benjamin was the oldest of three kids from a loving family. He was considered athletic, he belonged to a competitive swim team and worked as a lifeguard, but he didn't enjoy that job as much as the next job he got. He found work as an apprentice locksmith, 
which meant he was taught how to break into locked doors. This is where a little bit of creepiness begins to show in Benjamin's life. He was known to break into his friends' houses and eat their food while waiting for them to return home. He also liked weapons. He thought he might enjoy military life, and at first he thought about the army, but then thought maybe the Marines would be a better challenge. He'd heard that they had one of the toughest training programs, and he thought he could do it. As he spoke to recruiters, they suggested that he join the Navy, specifically the Navy SEALs. This is a really elite team. Less than 1% of all Navy personnel become Navy SEALs. I suppose becoming a Navy SEAL sounds like a great accomplishment and career, and in many ways it is. These people are fit, healthy, strong-willed, and highly trained, but they're also put into some of the most dangerous situations. Maybe some of them enjoy the danger, and that may have been the case for Benjamin. He was named honor man of his class, which meant he was one of the highest-performing soldiers. He was said to have uncanny stamina. Some of his peers tried to eat healthy and get a good night's sleep so they could perform well during their physical tasks from day to day. Even with their good intentions, they'd be exhausted at the end of the day. But Benjamin was different. He could excel at his tasks during the day and then go out and party and drink at night. He'd come back, sleep a couple hours, and still outperform his peers. He was drawn towards becoming a SEAL medic. Part of this training meant he would be required to dissect cadavers. This would help him learn how the body worked. His training was thorough and could be described by some as revolting. They would be put through simulations that were designed to look and feel as real as possible. I heard about one situation where farm animals were injured intentionally. The medics were asked to treat the live animals as best they could in an attempt to save them, although most of them would die. This training would be used to help desensitize trainees. It would keep them cool and clinical when under pressure. Benjamin performed highly. He would receive a good conduct medal and an expert marksmanship award. As busy as he was, he occasionally had thoughts about that little brunette named Erica he'd met at a bar. On a whim, he reached out to her and they immediately began dating. The two were a bit like vinegar and baking soda. Independently, they could have done great things, but together, they made explosive messes. In their first week of dating, Erica began asking Benjamin's female friends to stop talking to him. As their relationship progressed, Erica would get upset if Benjamin was late or not showing her enough attention. Predictably, she threw the tantrum of all tantrums when he told her he needed to go on a mission. He couldn't tell her where exactly, and she didn't like that one bit. She wanted to know exactly where he would be. He eventually folded and told her which town he would be in, even though it could get him in big trouble. The next day, she shows up there. Red flag, people. Don't progress with this relationship. Does he send her away? Of course not. Maybe he thought it proved she just couldn't get enough of him. He meets her, and he sneaks her into his room. Obviously, they get caught, and this is just the beginning of the shit show that ends up being their lives together. Erica and Benjamin would marry in Vegas after only three weeks of dating. Neither of their parents or families were present, nor did they approve. Right after the marriage, Erica would move in with Benjamin, and he would learn quickly that she was hard to live with. 
She may have been a little obsessive-compulsive, and was certainly anxiety-filled. She had a prescription for Xanax and Valium. Soon her neediness and anxiety would begin to irritate and then infuriate Benjamin. Before I go any further, I want to clarify that a lot of this information comes from statements made by Erica Sifrit, and to be frank, she's a liar. I'll remind you of this a few times throughout the story. However, I do think there is some truth to her tale. There's information from other sources wrapped up into the story, and I'll do my best to share with you whether it's Erica's version of the story or someone else's, because things are about to take a turn to the dark side, and the lies and manipulation begin. Erica's friends reported that they noticed a change in her. She seemed more depressed. She was losing weight and seemed to be exhausted. If you thought that Erica had the unstable upper hand in the marriage, this is where you might change your mind. Benjamin cheated on her with a co-worker. He thought it would be a harmless one-night stand, but he enjoyed her company and ended up using a burner phone to keep in touch with her. Well, like any cheater, he eventually got caught. Erica found some explicit email exchanges. She emailed the woman and asked her if the affair was true. The woman confirmed and Erica confronted Benjamin. She became deeply depressed and unable to function in daily life. Benjamin's response was not remorse, it was anger. He was mad that he now had to deal with the repercussions of his own actions. He emailed the woman saying, Hey bitch, you better tell my wife I never fucked you. And then he threatened her life and the lives of her children. The woman, being thoroughly scared, turned this email into the Navy. This was another strike against his career. Trying to recover emotionally, Erica began abusing her Xanax prescription and alcohol. Benjamin started acting up at work, telling his commanders to fuck themselves, and intentionally nearly running over some of his peers with his car. This happened not once, but twice, before he was placed in military jail. His mom had to hire an attorney to get him out. She was shocked and dismayed at his actions, and worse, she had Erica barking orders at her, telling her what she needed to do. The tension between the two women grew to an explosive moment when Erica pulled a gun on Benjamin's mother. His mom locked herself in a bedroom and called 911. Erica got a warning. Benjamin was finally dishonorably discharged. He would say his actions were all for Erica. She wanted him close to her. It would take a year or more to be honorably discharged, so a dishonorable discharge could happen much more quickly, and that's the route he went with. In the end, Erica got what she wanted. Benjamin wasn't happy, though, and Erica saw this. She suggested they take a vacation together. She asked her parents for some money, and the couples headed to South America for two whole months. Erica was rarely denied anything, and even though her parents didn't like Benjamin, they paid for that vacation. According to Erica, once there, she and Benjamin would load up on very cheap Xanax. It was reported that while in Chile, she was able to purchase the drug at a rate of 90 pills for a dollar, and she bought thousands, enough to last her more than a year. Once home, she convinced Benjamin that they needed to move closer to her parents. She came up with a business idea, a scrapbooking store. They could both work there together. Her dad would help with the startup, and that's just what they did. Erica was probably thrilled to have Benjamin in her sights every day, but Benjamin was hating this life. I think he was mentally checking or even checked out of their relationship at this time. Somehow, he had more affairs. 
Each time Erica found out, she'd get more depressed. The couple were still having sex, but it was very infrequent, like maybe once a month. She couldn't understand why he had to cheat when he didn't even want to have sex with her. He supposedly told her that sex with her didn't excite him. He needed new or wild things to excite him. Stealing things, having sex with strangers, going to strip clubs and racing in his car got him off. The thrill of the chase would turn him on. He'd do something taboo or dangerous and then masturbate right after. He would eventually be arrested for racing and running from the police. We all know the human body is amazing and adaptable. Unfortunately, when it has to do with drugs and even hormones like adrenaline, our adaptable bodies need more and more of the feel-good chemicals to get the same feelings. This meant that Benjamin had to do more and more dangerous activities to feel the excitement he desired. In the midst of his adrenaline addiction, according to Erica, one day Benjamin comes home and tells her that he wants a baby. She's excited and thrilled to hear this. They got pregnant quickly, and Erica's friends said she looked happier and healthier than she had in a long time. A few weeks later, Benjamin goes out with his friends and comes home telling her that she needed to get rid of that baby. He didn't want it anymore, so it was either the baby or him. The next day she had an abortion, and on the way home she lay her head in his lap, trying to deal with her emotions when he says, You passed the test. I had to see if you would do what I said, and you did. Essentially, now he knew she'd do anything to be with him. Again, that's her side of the story, and you can trust Erica as much as you can trust a barbecue hosted by Jeffrey Dahmer. A friend of theirs said the truth was that Benjamin was a heavy drinker. Erica was an addict, and the two of them together decided the baby probably wasn't going to be healthy anyway, so it would be best if they got an abortion. The couple wouldn't have children, but they did have pets. Their pet babies were snakes, pythons named Bonnie and Clyde, and Hitler. They fed the snakes live rats. One day, while snorting some cocaine that burned their noses and throats, they realized they'd been ripped off and were actually snorting Ajax. This pissed Benjamin off. He told Erica that he'd find the dealer and throw her in acid. He then went shopping and brought home a barrel of acid. He proceeded to take one of the live rats he'd bought to feed the snakes, and he dropped it into the barrel. The rat squealed for its life as its body was chemically burned, and it died. The next day, its body had dissolved completely. Soon after this, Benjamin would start trying to hit animals in the road. He'd swerve toward dogs and cats, enjoying the crunch of their bodies if he was able to hit them. He became emotionally abusive towards Erica. He would use her anxieties against her. She always had fears of leaving the stove on or leaving the doors unlocked, and Benjamin would use those fears against her. Soon after they'd leave their home, he'd ask her if she locked the door. When she asked to turn around and go back to check, he'd tell her no. She'd call her dad, asking him to go to the house and check on the stove or check the door. Her father did this so many times that he began to lie about going over to check on the house. Sometimes, Benjamin wouldn't let her buy food when they went out to a restaurant. He'd eat it right in front of her while telling her that she was too fat. The truth was she was already stick-thin and weak. In her mind, he enjoyed shaming her. Their scrapbooking business was losing money. Erica's dad was paying the bills. 
The stolen items they resold on eBay brought in some money, but all that work exhausted them. They decided that on Memorial Day weekend, 2002, they'd pack their things and head to Ocean City Beach, Maryland for a nice vacation. Erica's father had done some of the construction on the Rainbow Condominiums. He'd done a lot, actually, and he'd made friends with the owners, and his request was all it took for Erica and Benjamin to be able to stay there for free. They even got the penthouse. It was a luxurious two-story condo right on the ocean, and while in the area, they could shoplift to their heart's delight. Their first night there, they went to the local Hooters, had some dinner, cased the joint, and tried to buy tank tops from the waitresses. When that failed, Erica asked the waitress where to go for a good time. The waitress suggested a club called Secrets. The couple headed back to the penthouse to load up on drugs and alcohol. Then they tried to catch a bus to Secrets. While trying to pay for the bus, they realized they didn't have the exact change, which was what the driver required. Another couple, Josh Ford and Martha Crutchley, kindly swooped in to help the obviously impaired couple. They paid the bus fare and suggested that Erica and Ben repay the favor with drinks at the club, to which Josh and Martha agree. There isn't a lot of information available about Josh and Martha, and I believe their families preferred to keep their private lives private. So here are the basics. Josh was 32 and a mortgage broker. He served in the military and was an all-around good guy. At one time, he was a volunteer youth counselor in a predominantly black church. After his death, the church would create a scholarship in his name. It would be the first time a white person was bestowed such an honor. He would meet Martha at a Christmas party. She was 19 years older than he and an insurance executive. They met in 1999 and moved to Fairfax, Virginia in 2001, when Josh was offered a lucrative job there. Martha was described as calm and loving, and they were happy together. The couple liked to work hard, but they also loved a good time, and that's what they were looking for when they headed to Secrets that night. While in line at Secrets, which took nearly an hour, Erica began to get bored and probably sobered up a bit. She was seen grabbing another man from the line and taking him between parked cars in order to snort Xanax off his leg. Her questionable actions didn't seem to bother Benjamin in the least. When asked about it, his response was that he likes for her to be able to do whatever she wants. Does anybody else find this strange? This might lead to speculation over who was more of the lead in this garbage fire of a relationship. Erica will play the victim most of the time. But now and then she makes statements like, well, Benjamin cheated on me, so now I can do whatever I want. Back at Secrets, Erica began hitting on the leg guy's girlfriend. She was open to having relationships with women. She and Benjamin had had threesomes before. Their rules were that Erica could have sex with Benjamin and the woman, and Benjamin could watch, but he could only touch Erica. When they finally get in the door at Secrets, the two couples drink heavily. Erica describes the rest of the night as follows. They eventually all head back to Erica and Benjamin's penthouse. They wanted to go to another club, but they wanted more drugs and to get their bathing suits because the other club apparently had water features of some kind. While at the condo, Erica starts to freak out. Her purse is missing. She panics and starts searching the first floor of the condo. 
Everyone else is either on a house tour or wondering what the heck Erica is doing. She suddenly believes that one of the guests stole her purse, so... Instead of confronting them, she calls 911 at 3.01 a.m. She says loudly, Ah, there are people in the house I don't know. My purse. I'm afraid I'm going to have a robbery here. Then she goes on to say, I'm upstairs in my bedroom and they don't know where I am. Her call would be transferred to Ocean City's primary 911 center, where she says, Hi, there are people in my apartment. There are some background clicks that can be heard on the line. Ma'am, did you want the police? the dispatcher asks. Erica responds, Yes, I do. I think there's a third person on the line right now. She requested another number to call back. And then she hangs up. Another call is never made. So Erica is frantically searching for her purse. She tells Benjamin that she thinks Martha or Josh stole it. She's completely freaking out. Benjamin pulls out Erica's gun and makes the couple strip down to prove they didn't have her purse. Josh and Martha are scared shitless, so they run to an upper-level bathroom and lock themselves inside. Benjamin was unbelievably angry now, and Erica said she was trying to calm him down. The only way she could do that was by finding her purse, so she heads downstairs to search, and then she heard two pops of a gun. Yes, there were condos below them, but apparently... No one else heard anything, and the police never did show up. Erica's first story is that she runs upstairs, sees Benjamin kicking at the bathroom door and shooting through the door. She said it seemed as if Benjamin was becoming aroused by the violence and the screams for help coming from inside the bathroom. Josh and Martha manage to open the bathroom window and are shouting for help, but there's no one there to hear them or help them. Benjamin then turns to Erica and says, Hey, I'm just going to fucking waste them. Is that okay? Her response was, and she admits this, just fucking do it. You put a gun to their head. You made them get naked. So just fucking do it then. Get it over with. So then, Benjamin proceeded to shoot and kill their guests. It gets much worse. The problem with this particular scenario is that Erica's fingerprints are found on the outside of the bathroom window. The window opened up next to a balcony on the outside. You couldn't climb out the window onto the balcony, but the window was easily reachable from the balcony. In fact, you could lean forward and be able to see inside the bathroom. It would later be argued that Erica leaned over the handrail and looked into the large bathroom in order to tell Benjamin where to shoot. Or maybe to check whether Josh and Martha were dead. Or maybe to later watch as Josh cut and dismembered their bodies. We all know liars change their story. So in version two of Erica's story, she claimed Benjamin was wanting to murder somebody for a long time. She claimed he wanted to kill her family, but she said no. His reason for doing so was money. Her parents were rich. Her aunt was rich. Her grandparents were rich. They could inherit it all. Benjamin was the evil one, not her. Her story about the murders in the penthouse changed. She said Benjamin began to rage when Josh and Martha ran naked into the bathroom and locked the door. He could have easily kicked down the door if he wanted to, but instead he wanted to toy with the couple. He could hear them calling and begging for help. He put his ear up to the door, then fired and kicked the door down. Josh had been shot. Martha was screaming. 
He points the gun at Josh. Josh tried to create a bond, talking about their shared time in the military, but Benjamin squatted down in front of him and said, See you later, motherfucker, and shot him. Erica then says she peed her pants and left the room. Benjamin comes out of the room covered in blood. Erica would claim it looked as if he had painted it on himself, and he began flexing and showing off. Martha was still trapped in the bathroom, alive, but not for long. He walked back into the room and called Erica inside. She sees Josh gurgling blood, and she runs away again. Benjamin grabs her by the arm and notices that she peed her pants. He starts making fun of her. He then forces her back into the bathroom and makes her wait there. He walked over to where Martha was cowering underneath the sink. He fires a shot at her and supposedly misses. If you remember, he was an excellent marksman, so how could he miss from just a few inches away? But this is Erica's story, and she's sticking to it. So, was Benjamin mentally torturing Martha? Or maybe he wasn't the one to miss that easy shot. Maybe it was actually Erica. The second shot was down into Martha's shoulder and neck. Blood would have been everywhere. If Erica and Benjamin were walking in and out of the bathroom, as her story suggests, there would have been bloody footprints. When police eventually searched the crime scene, there was no evidence of blood or that any cleanup had been done outside of the bathroom. In Erica's first version, she stated that Benjamin slit Martha's throat. In version two, he shot her, then forced Erica to check if she was dead. Erica did this by stabbing a knife into Martha's hip, deeply. That's a pretty weird way to check for vital signs, if you ask me. Erica described getting blood all over her clothes. When she described this scene to police, she showed no emotion or remorse. Apparently, she was still worried about her purse, and mentioned it to Benjamin. His response was to smile at her slightly and say, Look under the bed. When she supposedly rushes out of the bathroom covered in blood, but not leaving a trace of it on the carpet, she looks under the bed, and there it was. She thought Benjamin must have hid it from her. Well, that was a lie. The space between the bed and the floor was only half an inch. She claimed that after the murders, he then forces her to help him clean up. He tells her to grab some trash bags, so she runs downstairs and brings some up, but they're white. White simply won't do in a bloodbath. Erica then makes a trip to a nearby dollar store, which also seems very unlikely, because she'd have been covered in blood, and I don't know any dollar stores that are open at 4 a.m. When she gets back, Benjamin's in the bathroom, completely naked and covered in blood. He got the bodies into a large bathtub, and she said she knew he was about to decapitate them. How she knew, I'm not sure, but she supposedly ran downstairs, balled herself up and rocked back and forth, trying to calm herself down for hours. Later, she hears Benjamin call for her. When she goes up, Benjamin, still naked as the day he was born, was holding the heads in his hands and asked her to take a picture. She refused, calling him an asshole, and ran back downstairs. She kept describing terrible things he'd done to the bodies, 
including necrophilia and cannibalism. Eventually, the bodies were packed into garbage bags. The plastic trash bags with the limbs were then placed into his Navy travel bags, and then into plastic totes. What's up with the plastic storage totes, you might be asking? Who packs storage totes for a long weekend vacation? Well, maybe the murders were pre-planned. Or maybe they planned to store their stolen merch in the totes. I don't know the real answer. The bags go into the totes, and the totes go into the jeep. They shower, and then Erica says she fell asleep on the way to the first dumpster. The body parts were placed into two different dumpsters, with Erica supposedly refusing to help. Benjamin told her they were in Delaware, and said that perhaps they should rob a couple stores in the area later. He then tells her how sexually excited he was. They returned home and went to sleep. Four hours later, she wakes him up, insisting they finish cleaning, but he's in no hurry. They had the room booked for at least six more days. They threw out most of their victims' items, but kept a couple of trophies, including Josh's military ring, which Benjamin put on a chain, and Erica wore around her neck. They also kept their credit cards and IDs. Benjamin kept the bullet he'd shot into Josh. The couple headed to the local hardware store to buy cleaning and repair supplies. They had blood to clean up, bullet holes to cover, and a kicked-in door to replace. Once home, Benjamin poured bleach on the blood and scrubbed away, while Erica sat on the balcony and freaking sunbathed. The towels, bleached blood and remaining tissue was bagged and thrown down the condo's trash chutes. The next day, they headed to Home Depot to buy paint and a door. Over all this time, Erica claims that Benjamin forced her to take pictures. She photographed everything, and in the photo, she's smiling. They're laughing and kissing. She even gets a tattoo of a cross on her hip, in the exact place she claimed to stab Martha. Twenty hours after the murders, the two of them are chowing down on crab legs at Secret's Bar smiling as if they don't have a care in the world. In the photo, around Erica's neck, was Josh's ring. They go on to have a wild week. They even get kicked out of a club for getting too wild. Erica's yelling at the guards as she is removed, saying she'll kill them, all the while laughing. Right after this incident, she meets a man named Todd. He was drunk, and he struck up a conversation with the recently evacuated Sifritz. They invited him to their penthouse, like they were old friends. The drunk Sifritz drove drunk Todd toward their home, but the jeep gets a flat. They're too drunk to change the tire. They can't call the police or AAA for help because, once again, they are drunk. Suddenly, Todd remembered that he had a friend nearby who could help. The friend, Melissa, reluctantly arrives and sees that Todd is a mess. The next part of the story is Melissa's testimony when they go to court. So it is not Erica's version. So Melissa arrives. She sees that Todd's a mess. She sees Erica, drunk and stumbling. Benjamin is drunk but not wasted. She helps Benjamin change the tire, and she gets a creepy feeling about the couple. She wonders if they're faking their inebriation. The Sifferts insist that they buy her a drink to thank her. She says no, she's got stuff to do, but her friend Todd and the Sifferts insisted. Melissa ends up driving to a nearby bar with them. 
Erica is taking pictures left and right, unprompted by Benjamin. Melissa wants to go home. She doesn't drink much of her drink. Todd drinks most of it. And once finished, the Sifrits insist she come back to their place. They want her to drive them there. She doesn't want to go. Benjamin coerces Melissa into following them home just to make sure they arrive safely. Once there, Melissa debates going home, but Todd's with the Sifrits in their Jeep. So Melissa sits tight, hoping Todd will come to her car. Then Benjamin gets out and taps on her window. He asks for help getting Erica into the elevator. She had passed out in the car. Melissa was clearly regretting her decision to come help her friend Todd by now. She reluctantly agreed and helped carry Erica inside. Once there, she rides the elevator up to the penthouse, where, miraculously, Erica wakes up, stands up on her own two feet, digs through her purse, and unlocks the door. The first thing she does is check her laundry, which is kind of weird. The water hadn't drained properly, and she complained to Benjamin that he needed to fix it. What they didn't know at the time was that the laundry machine was clogged with Josh and Martha's hair. How that much hair got into the washer, I don't know. Erica grabbed Melissa by the arm and starts leading her around the penthouse. At this point, Erica seems perfectly sober, which is unnerving to Melissa, who saw her supposedly passed out just a few minutes earlier. Erica was randomly wandering around the apartment, talking about her possessions, while Benjamin and Todd were drinking a beer together. Erica's blathering on about this and that when suddenly she goes quiet and gets a confused look on her face and says, Wait, where is my purse? She starts searching for her bag and starts to get panicked. Benjamin notices it and asks Erica what's going on. She says, We have to find my purse. It has these people's ID in it, hinting at the fact that Josh and Martha's IDs were inside. Stick that statement in your pocket, because we'll come back to it. At this point, Erica honestly seemed panicked. All four of them start searching. When Melissa walked past the bathroom, she noticed the door was off its hinges, and it appeared to have small holes in it. They kept searching. They even went back down to the car, which made no sense, because Melissa had seen the keys come out of the purse when they entered the penthouse. When she and Erica returned to the penthouse, Benjamin stood there with a cocky grin on his face. Melissa felt the hairs go up on the back of her neck. She noticed a gun on Benjamin's belt. Perhaps he was even displaying it. She became super calm and walked in. She pretended to search the couch cushions as she tried to wrap her head around what was going on. Benjamin came up behind her and grabbed her, spinning her around, and then squeezed her face with his hand. He brought his face to within inches of hers and stressed the importance of finding that purse. She looked him in the eyes and responded calmly, I don't have the purse and I don't want it, but I will help you find it. Benjamin began pacing around, getting more and more worked up. He even took his gun out, pointing it to direct where they should look as they searched each room. Drunk Todd even realized he was in danger and instinctively stuck close to Melissa. He stayed quiet and helped look. Erica knew the game. This was history repeating itself. If she was telling the truth about the lost purse the first time around, and if she was truly scared by what had happened to Josh and Martha, well then surely she would have kept her big lying mouth shut about her now missing purse. 
If it isn't obvious to you yet, let me make it clear that she was in on the murders. She was fully complicit, and maybe even led the charge. Benjamin ordered them all downstairs. Erica stopped on the way and walked into the bathroom. Melissa followed her in order to get a minute alone with her. She tells Erica that she doesn't feel comfortable being around Benjamin and the gun, and that Erica needs to tell him to put it away. Erica doesn't reply, but she walks out and with a mocking voice tells Benjamin he needs to put the gun away because it was scaring poor Melissa. Then she starts laughing. They go back to searching, and minutes later Benjamin says, Oh, look what I found, and he pulls the purse out from behind a couch cushion one that had already been searched multiple times. Benjamin sits down on the couch. Erica sits on his lap. And then Benjamin announces that they need to go have some sex now. Melissa was thrilled. She ran out of there faster than Erica could snort her Xanax. A few minutes later, while driving home, Todd calls Melissa asking her to come back and get him. She insists that he meet her downstairs. She takes him home, and a couple days later, she takes a trip to Hawaii. She had no idea how lucky she was. So why didn't they get murdered? Well, some people believe that Melissa and Todd weren't scared enough to turn the adrenaline junkies on. I don't agree with this. I think they were still on a high from the murders, and secretly and disgustingly joking about it turned them on. Hiding the purse was a way to bring those thrilling feelings back. Benjamin admitted being turned on, and he wanted to have sex with Erica. That's why he made the announcement. This, of course, is only my speculation. What I find strange is that when they get caught stealing from the Hooters a couple days later, the first thing Erica asks the police to do is look through her purse. The same purse with the hidden IDs that she'd hinted to Benjamin about a couple days earlier. If she remembered the IDs being in there that night, why wouldn't she remember them when she directs the police to go through her bag? Or was she so anxious and dependent on those Xanax that she just didn't care if they get caught? The police searched the Sifrit's penthouse and realized that something bad had happened there. They found the traces of blood all over the bathroom and all the little nooks and crannies, and it was confirmed to be Josh and Martha's blood. Once confronted with this information, Josh clammed up. The only thing he could say is, talk to my wife. And that they did, and boy, did she talk. Benjamin would later claim that what really happened was he passed out in the Jeep at 2 a.m., and his 100-pound wife Erica did all the killing. Erica would wake him hours later, telling him they needed to run. She showed him the dead bodies, and he helped dispose of them, but he didn't actually kill anyone. At the trial, Benjamin was found responsible for Martha's death, but was not convicted of Josh's death. He would be convicted of second-degree murder for Martha and nothing for Josh. Erica was sentenced to first-degree murder for Josh and second-degree murder for Martha. Benjamin filed for divorce in 2010, eight years after the murder. I wonder what took him so long. He was denied parole in May of 2022. Erica Sifrit will be eligible for parole in 2024. Let's hope she's denied as well. She allegedly talks in detail about the murders to her cellmates and hints that the couple may have killed more people. Remember that chip to Chile? 
She claimed the two of them really bonded while there. Speculation about a murdered drug dealer exists, and another murder in Altoona, Pennsylvania, but there's no proof. Erica calls Benjamin her serial killer ex. I feel like she's the kind of person who likes to brag about what she's done, and honestly, I'm sick of talking about both of them. If you want to know more, read the book A Life Gone Murderously Wrong by M. William Phelps. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a minute to rate and review the podcast. Join Twisted Travel and True Crime on social media, including Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. I'd really like to thank my new friend Melissa from Cold Truth on YouTube for the case suggestion. She reminded me of the case um, this past weekend. A big thank you to all of you wonderful listeners who share this podcast with your friends and spread the love online. You guys keep me going. I'd like to wish you all fair winds and following seas and safe vacations of all kinds. P.S. Don't try to buy your Hooters waitress's tank top. That's weird. It's just spring for a new one.